0: Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and a current Washington Post columnist. At Talking Feds, we do special episodes which we call Talking Feds Now to react to breaking important news. And there have been two hugely important stories in Talking Feds land this week, and we're here, or actually spread out across the country, to talk about both of them. First, the revelation that Robert Mueller will be testifying before two House committees on July 17th. We're going to look at that story through the prism of an important and timely article by two charter feds well known to listeners of this program and MSNBC, both of whom recently testified in the House about the Mueller report. Barb McQuaid, the former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and currently a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School, is the first to join us. Hey, Barb.
1: Hi, Harry. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Thanks for coming. And Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and longtime assistant U.S. attorney from the Northern District of Alabama, who joins us from Birmingham, where she's the distinguished professor of the practice of law at the University of Alabama School of Law. Hey, Joyce.
2: Hi, Harry. Glad to be with you again.
0: And we're the three of us are joined by Rich Cordray whose Wikipedia entry runs 21 pages. But just to touch on some of the highlights, Rich was probably known to many listeners of the podcast as the first director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau from 2012 to 2017. Before that, he was Ohio's elected attorney general and treasurer, and he also was the first solicitor general of Ohio. Ohio. He was the nominee of the Democratic Party for governor in 2018, and he was clerk to two different Supreme Court justices, Byron White and Anthony Kennedy, the latter with me. And he has argued seven cases in the Supreme Court. And of course, he always—we always have to mention—he's a five-time Jeopardy champion. Rich Cordray, thank you very much for joining Talking Feds today.
3: My pleasure.
1: You know, can I just interrupt? All that stuff, Richard, that you've done is very impressive. But five-time Jeopardy! champion? Now that's a real accomplishment. I'm impressed.
3: Yeah, I didn't have to go up against James Holtzauer, I will say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The whole dynamic of the last 13 weeks since the Mueller report was actually published, uh, chock full as it was of important and damning details, has been to try to bring it home to the American people. But between uh, some advanced spin by the Attorney General, William Barr, and just the sheer dauntingness of a 448-page written report, it seems there are basically two kinds of people in the country, those that have read the report and the much larger group that haven't. And many of us and people in Congress have been really uh, uh, trying very hard to think of how to bring home the very vivid uh, wealth of details that is already in the report, even leaving aside what else is not in the report. Uh, That's why you saw, for instance, earlier this week, a TV show called The Investigation with actors reading the report uh, and all kinds of efforts. And for my money, it's the two charter feds, Joyce and Barb, who have given the most cogent and compact account by confronting the myths that have grown up around the Mueller report. So hooray for Barb and Joyce, but I'd like to really dive in by way of their article in Time magazine entitled, These 11 Mueller report myths just won't die, and here's why they're wrong. And I just want to briefly read what the myths are, because we won't have time to cover all of them. But then double back on what I think as the most important. But here are the myths that Barb and Joyce cover in their article in Time. Myth one: Mueller found no collusion. Myth two: Mueller found no obstruction. Myth three: The case is closed. No do overs. Myth four. The focus on obstruction detracts from the focus on Russia. Myth five, if there was no underlying crime, then there can be no obstruction of justice. Myth six, because Trump was unsuccessful in ending the investigation, there can be no obstruction of justice. Myth seven, a president cannot obstruct justice as a matter of law when he or she is exercising executive power. Myth eight, Mueller wanted Barr to make the call on whether Trump committed obstruction. Myth nine, the investigation began with the Steele dossier. And myth 10, spying occurred against the Trump campaign. This is more or less the whole collection of talking points from the administration and Fox News and Trump champions, uh, who, who have become antagonists and will remain antagonists to the Mueller report. So let's just double back to the most important ones and Barb and Joyce point to the evidence that leads you to say why these are myths. Give us some sense of how sticky a myth they are and why and what Mueller can do in this testimony to try to overcome it. So myth number one is that Mueller found no collusion. Barb, let me just start with you. First, are you saying that Mueller did find collusion? And, and what, what exactly are you saying in calling this a myth?
1: I hear from many people who heard William Barr's uh, summary of the report as Mueller found no co- collusion, which is very different from what he actually said in his report. Um, he said that the evidence did not establish a crime of conspiracy, he also said that a statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. So collusion is kind of a mushy word. But if by that you just mean mutual uh, assistance between Trump and Russia, then yeah, I think there was a lot of collusion. But what Mueller said is, you know, I'm not going to use that word because it's, it's not really a legal term. It's kind of confusing. But so what he does, you know, let's just discuss the substance of it. He spends about 200 pages describing what he calls, quote, numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. He found that a Russian entity carried out a social media campaign that favored Donald Trump and disparaged Hillary Clinton. He found that a Russian intelligence service conducted computer intrusion operations against the Clinton campaign and released stolen documents, and that the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency And worked to secure that outcome.
0: And that's all on the Russian side. Now, what about findings? If there was no conspiracy, what about findings? And we're talking just about facts that the investigation establishes. What about findings that the Trump campaign happily profited from these efforts and specific tangible steps it took to try to leverage and exploit them?
1: Well, he he documents a number of these incidents. One is Uh, campaign chair Paul Manafort sharing polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik, who the FBI assesses has connections to Russian intelligence. And they gave him polling data about the states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, three states where Trump won upset victories.
0: And by the way, yeah, I mean, just that encounter, right? That was about the, one of the more vivid details in the report. He didn't just give it to him. He gives it at this meeting where they come and go by separate entrances and are obviously very sort of cloak and dagger. There's an awareness that this is not innocent activity. Isn't that fair?
1: Yes, it it is. And that was also one of the areas where Paul Manafort persisted in lying to Robert Mueller and his team, even after he agreed to cooperate. And Mueller says he never really quite got his arms around what the purpose was in sharing that polling data.
0: One of many right key details, this is another big point that you guys bring home. There's a lot of gaps because there was a lot of non-cooperation and it would be ironic, not to say wrong, to use those gaps to actually exonerate the campaign and even the president.
3: Can I add one thing about that? The meeting with Kalimnik, obviously uh, Manafort was not going to meet with Putin. Some things are too obvious, but if he's meeting with someone who could be an interlocutor and he shares polling data on Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, at a minimum, that sends a message that any outside interests who are going to intervene in any way in the campaign, this is the place that you should focus, is on these three states. That enough could be a su- significant message to send.
0: That's really true, and of course, prescient. Um, okay, big myth number two, and I have some thoughts about this. Uh, Mueller found no obstruction. What? Who's saying this myth? Where's it come from? How wrong is it? How persistent is it? What what are your thoughts about this number two myth?
2: So this one, again, started with William Barr when he released his summary of the Mueller report, but withheld it, the report itself for an additional three weeks. So by the time we actually had the report and could read it and saw that it, in fact, did not exonerate the president, explicitly didn't exonerate and contained 10 possible charges that Mueller had considered, the stamp that had been left in the minds of most people in the public was no obstruction. They heard it on the news. It was the talk. You know, Trump tweeted it at every place, repeated it at every gaggle. And it's just not true. And this, I think, is something um, that's disappointing to see in a sitting attorney general. So
0: do we have any idea, by the way, what bar is even saying he's asserted this we have no written opinion on his part what's even his basis for so flatly contradicting Mueller and saying you know no obstruction
2: he looks at the evidence and he and he gives rod rosenstein the former deputy attorney general a pretty hard hug in on this decision and says we looked at the evidence and we decided that there was no obstruction But, you know, over a thousand former federal prosecutors, Republicans and Democrats alike have now reviewed the evidence and said, just based on what's in the report, you know, we're not seeing the underlying documents or any of the other evidence. Just based on what's in the report itself, we'd be comfortable charging some of these instances as obstruction.
0: Yeah, And by the way, a thousand. I mean, there aren't that many. You know, it's not like state uh prosec- I've never seen a letter of, of a thousand federal prosecutors um and it, uh, it that that's just that's an important document too it just it's just straight up on the uh evidence in fact that's sort of what you and barb testified to congress about no
2: it's a lot like what we testified to congress about yeah
0: Okay, I want to take this even farther and ask what what you think. I actually would be ready to argue not only that it's not the case that he found no obstruction, but that it is the case that he found obstruction. There are four instances, if you sort of chart them, where there's no doubt of the first two elements of an obstructive act and a nexus. And the, all these questions, all these questions turn on Trump's intent, which is why it was so significant that he didn't get any questions. I, you know, I I would want to make even a stronger claim, though I know it, it's, it's a little bit farther than most have been willing to go. But as I read the report, it's not just the case that you can't say he found no obstruction. I I think really the only reasonable reading is that he found obstruction. There were four instances where he laid out the different elements of obstruction. It all turns on Trump's uh, intent, which is why, of course, it's so significant that Trump wasn't uh, subpoenaed or or otherwise um, questioned. But look, this these all everybody on Mueller's team, they spend their whole career going up to the line and deciding whether whether something constitutes uh a a chargeable crime or not. And when they say we couldn't say it didn't charge a crime, uh I, I think there's no way for them to say that they got there other than by making the analysis of whether it went up to the line. I think it's very implausible that they sort of got in the neighborhood and then stopped. And we also know that's not right because Mueller explaining the failure to go after certain evidence like Trump's said repeatedly, we thought we had enough already. And I I can't construe that anyway, other than saying as to these incidents, we believed we had sufficient circumstantial evidence to prove corrupt intent. So I actually think the only fair reading of the report is that they did find it. And Mueller might not say that come the 17th, but it'll be interesting whether some of his deputies who will be interviewed behind closed doors will.
1: Yeah, I think we've all seen this. This report looks a lot like a prosecution memo. I mean, it is sort of a prosecution memo. And we've all. What is a
0: prosecution memo? Yeah, set that out.
1: And we've all written them and we've all reviewed them and usually what a prosecutor does is he summarizes his factual findings and then analyzes it under the law and then reaches a conclusion either therefore i recommend charges or therefore i recommend that we decline charges because the evidence isn't there and he he describes 10 of these episodes and with regard to 4 of them he finds substantial evidence to satisfy each and every element of the offense so if i were reading that report from any other prosecutor, I would fully expect that the conclusion would be, therefore, I am recommending charges as to these four incidents.
2: You know, I think that that's absolutely right. The difference here, the reason Mueller doesn't make that judgment is only because Trump's status as the president of the United States protects him. And that's because there's an Office of Legal Counsel memo that we've all discussed a lot and are familiar with that says it's Justice Department policy not to indict a sitting president. And Mueller chose to follow that precedent, as I think he was obligated to do so. That's why we have this funny disconnect where we look at the memo, we look at the Mueller report, and the evidence, I think, is clear. I'd be willing to charge four of these instances as obstruction of justice, and I would feel very good about obtaining and sustaining a conviction on them. Mueller is just saying, I can't do it because he's the president.
0: Yeah. And just to underscore what the thousand people said, you're not allowed as a federal prosecutor to bring charges, even if you think they're righteous, unless you think it is probable that you can get a conviction. So each and every people of these thousand, and I think the Mueller team, because this is what they do in their whole career, is saying, you know, we, we, we not only see it ourselves, but we think that a, that a jury would see it that way.
2: Well, and it's even more than that, Harry. It's It's both obtain the the conviction and sustain it. And even if they felt that there was evidence to obtain a conviction, which I think that they did believe, they clearly had concern about sustaining it on appeal because Mueller doesn't mention just the OLC memo. He says he also believes that there are constitutional issues involved in indicting a president. And why put the country through this long trauma of prosecution only to lose on appeal when there's another mechanism sitting right there congress which it's with its impeachment power which in many ways is much broader than Mueller's power as a federal prosecutor
0: yeah I'll, and i'll just say for my money this is the most you know important and most sticky of myths if you could wave a wand or just have the republicans wake up from their slumber and understand this it would really be. It, it matters in in part because of what side you're on, but it just matters and for the for the public for understanding what happened here. Now, I, I think by the way, he was obligated maybe to follow the policy. Whether he therefore had to um, actually forbear making a judgment is something that one could discuss, and maybe we will later. That you know, maybe it, it didn't require him to go to these. You know, what's what's really aggregated the situation and making no judgment at all. Barr has said, hey, he could have still bottom line, uh, but that's a different topic. All right. I do think those are the two most important, but there are others that are vital that really have been um, persistent myths. Uh, and there, a couple of them are pure legal claims, but we have a, um, a claim by Barr, by Trump, bipartisan saying, uh, and this is your myth number five, um, Barb. If there was no underlying crime, then there can be no obstruction of justice. What What's even the argument there and what makes it a myth?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you hear people say, well, if there was no conspiracy, then how can there possibly be any obstruction of justice? And that really misses the point of the law. The law charges uh, even attempts to obstruct justice. And that's because the crime, the wrongfulness that the law seeks to prevent is the effort to prevent investigators from learning the truth. And so uh, just your efforts to prevent them from finding the truth is the harm and is the crime. Um, you know, and it makes sense because otherwise um, successful obstructors could uh, conceal their crime and then get off scot free just because they were really good at obstructing a crime. And also, let's not forget that even though Trump wasn't charged with anything, 37 individuals and entities were charged in this case. And so, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, one of the things that um, Trump attempted to obstruct was Mueller's ability to investigate obstruction in this investigation. You remember in the report, Mueller talks about the fact that Trump had directed Corey Lewandowski to ask Jeff Sessions when he was the attorney general to reverse his recusal decision and then announce publicly that the special counsel's investigation would focus only on future elections. And so that would have precluded Mueller from learning about how to prevent attacks like the one that happened in 2016.
0: Yeah, and that that was maybe the most powerful little snippet and it went beyond the four corners in his nine minute statement, right? How did he put it? You know, when a subject, which is of course in legal parlance, Exactly what we know Trump was, a subject, not a target.
2: I think what you're talking about is this notion, because Mueller goes to some trouble yep. to explain why obstruction is important. And he exactly. says when a subject tries to keep its government from getting to the truth of the matter under investigation, then the system, the criminal justice system, is the the loser. Yes. People are the loser.
0: Right. And that seems so portentous. I mean, obviously, he was talking about the president there as a subject. Sorry, go ahead.
2: No, I think that that's right. I mean, Mueller, to me, is saying in the very understated language that prosecutors use, which I think has been difficult for some people to, to put their arms around. But he's saying the president interfered in this investigation. And that's a serious matter. And we should Consider that as we move forward, whether he's charged or not. At least that's what I read into it.
0: So there is this abiding myth that somehow Mueller was just kind of doing sort of staff work to serve it up to the attorney general, Barr, and that he wanted Barr to make the call on whether Trump committed obstruction. Why, Joyce, do you identify that as a myth?
2: You know, that's clearly not what Mueller had in mind here. And without walking all the way down the road with this messy legal argument that Mueller offers as the reason that he can't make a decision on obstruction, I think it's important to understand that he explicitly said that no decision should be made, that that would be unfair to the president, it might even impair possible future prosecutions or other actions. So far from giving Barr an invitation to make the decision that he made, he, I, I think, pretty strictly said, no one in the Justice Department should make this. So it's sort of stunning that we have Barr doing this after just a couple days' quick perusal of the report. Right.
0: And this is something that it could come up on the 17th, it seems to me. If they ask him that question, I think he's hard pressed to just to just you know deflect it.
2: You know, I'm of two minds about that, Harry. Mueller was pretty clear that the report was his testimony and that he wouldn't go beyond it. And I've got to say that as a prosecutor, I would strenuously resist uh, answering any sort of questions that sought to look inside of a criminal prosecution and decisions that were made inside of the, the department. I think that their work product, in that sense, there are good prudential reasons for, for protecting them. But as an American citizen, I'm curious as hell.
0: Yeah, Um, I, you know, I've thought about this some, and I actually think the claims he could make probably don't prevail. But as a practical matter, it doesn't doesn't make that big a difference because I think if he stands on it, Congress will not want to, you know, push him, hold him in contempt, go through that whole rigmarole. So yeah, that will be an interesting battle of wills. Okay, one final myth I, I just want to serve uh, up to everyone and and ask why you identified it and how abiding and important you think it is. And that's this notion that a president cannot obstruct justice as a matter of law when he is exercising executive power. Where, where do you see that kind of bubbling up, barb and and what impact do you see it as having?
1: This was the theory that William Barr himself espoused when he submitted that nineteen page memo before he was the Attorney General to the Department of Justice. He wrote in great te- detail about this theory, and when Joyce and I testified, there was a witness from the Heritage Foundation who also testified about this theory it 's you know part of this sort of strong unitary executive theory that if the president is uh, directing someone in the Justice Department to do something then Legally, he can't obstruct justice, but Robert Mueller actually rejects that theory in a very detailed analysis that I'm sure was done by Michael Dreben, a longtime lawyer in the Department of Justice,s Solicitor General's office, who's argued you know a hundred cases or more before the Supreme Court. And what he points to is that um, to to make that argument that the President can execute the law in any way he wants to, even if it's done corruptly really ignores an important word in the text of the Constitution. And that is not just that the president execute the law, but that he do so faithfully. And so to say that the president can execute the law in a way that is not in the best interests of the people, but is in his own personal self-interest, would violate that duty to execute the law faithfully. And so Robert Mueller re- rejected that theory, that anytime the president executes his power in a way that favors himself over the best interests of the country, could very well amount to obstruction of justice and Congress could write a statute as it did that could apply to the president in this scenario.
0: Rich Corder, you've, you've argued in front of the court a lot. Does that seem like the, the winning counter argument here? And does the, the Trump theory seem, you know, all wet or plausible or what
3: to you? I do think the word faithfully makes a difference, but I also would say that the theory, the, the bar theory is so incredibly broad it would suggest that, uh, I, I think it would suggest that if you're exercising executive power, you cannot violate the law. Uh, I, I mean, it seems to me that that's what it, what it is amounting right. to. You're giving and,
0: a pardon for racially discriminatory reasons or whatever. That's fine. Or you're,
3: you're conducting the- an official act uh, and taking a bribe to do so. Uh, you know, I, I just, it seems to me incredibly broad. And it's not consistent with anything that I think the founding fathers thought about. Uh, how the government would operate. Uh, It's it's quite an abstract uh, theory that doesn't seem to have much real practical grounding to me.
2: So I agree 100% with everything that Rich just said. But even if you were to give the folks who believe in this broad executive power the benefit of that argument, there's still one obstructive act that Mueller identifies that's outside of Trump's executive power. And that's this incredible series of conversations he has where he tries to convince Don McGahn to rebut the story that, that Trump himself tried to get McGahn to fire Mueller and and he actually asks McGahn to create some sort of a document to back that up. That's beyond the scope of his executive power. So even this convoluted argument that William Barr put forward in his 19 page memo is accepted by the court. There's still this one act of obstruction for which the president would be responsible if he weren't the president anymore and could be indicted.
0: Boy, I think that just has to be right. Um Okay, let's let's sort of let's close this out and transition looking forward with one uh, question. I'll serve it up to Barr, but if anyone has thoughts, uh, we now know that Mueller, it looks as if unless unless Barr, the department tries to countermand it, will be there on the 17th. Mueller, American hero, prosecutors, prosecutor, marine, dutiful, you, you know, man of steel. Trump comes out of the box yesterday calling him a criminal, that for deleting uh, emails that had already been published. Do we actually think that the Republican strategy here is going to be to, you know, as it's been with other sort of generic witnesses, to dirty Mueller up and to try to call him a corrupt, biased criminal. C- can that dog possibly hunt? And is that the way they'll be going? Any any thoughts on that?
1: You know, I don't know. I heard Representative Mark Meadows say words that would be consistent with that, like, you know, that uh, Mueller better be ready. We're ready for him, uh, you know, as if uh, they're planning a very antagonistic kind of uh, uh, confrontation. I'd be surprised if I were giving them advice on how to handle that. I would advise against it. I think that um, you can try to just get Robert Mueller to, you know, he's he's not going to be there to volunteer anything beyond what's in the report. And so um, I'd be surprised. And I don't think that's going to fly with the American people. I don't think that um, that concept that Robert Mueller is, you know, some rogue has really uh, taken hold in the American Uh, psyche. And so um, I hope not. I think he deserves better. He's a a lifelong public servant who did a job and came up with results. But um, you never know. And based on on those uh, early statements, it appears they may be on the attack.
0: They did it to other lifelong public servants like McCabe, et cetera. But somehow I agree. Mueller just seems different.
3: Well, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to what approach uh, President Trump will take in his tweets. I do think that it would be misplaced to try to malign Mueller at this point. Uh, He has a longstanding reputation. And if anything, the concern people have had about him through this episode is that he's been altogether too genteel in the way he has conducted himself. And I don't think that it would apply for the American people to suddenly see him as some sort of rogue criminal. If anything, he's been bounded too much at times by procedures from getting at some of the truth that people would have liked to have seen exposed.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, you know, there are a series of things that, as as um, respected and estimable as he is, he could arguably be taken to task for erring erring on the side of being a, uh, you know, a gentleman using Marquis of Queensberry rules against uh, against cage fighters. Okay. Uh, Well, uh, we're going to learn a lot and see whether some of these myths will be dispelled, uh, at least for a chunk of the uh, American public come the 17th. Um, Let's turn to the the other huge drop the banner headline news of this week, the much anticipated end of the Supreme Court term and the two final opinions, one dealing with gerrymandering and one dealing with the census. Um, so starting with gerrymandering and, and Rich, let me ask you about it. I, I know that you've actually had an interest throughout your time in public service in different aspects in of the right to vote. And it does seem like the courts here sort of finally closing the door on any judicial review. Well, well, give, give us the basic ruling uh, of the court and why many people are kind of tearing their hair out this week, uh, as the Supreme court so-called rises as they put it for the, uh, summer.
3: Well, gerrymandering, uh, Harry, as many people have seen is one of the, uh, sort of checkmate, uh, political provisions that can occur in the political process where people can benefit themselves and nobody is able to, uh, protect democracy against their self-interested movements against it. It was a similar process that led eventually to the court taking the case of Baker versus Carr and deciding that uh, the apportionment, uh, which also has very little textual basis in the Constitution for evaluating it, should in fact lead to a decision that has become widely embraced and has been law of the land ever and since. And that's
0: like 19, 1964, I want to say, Baker v. Carr, yes? Or it's quite a hairy decision.
3: It was more than 50 years ago, and and that the principle of one person, one vote has been enshrined in the law ever since. And I think the court had given enough signals in the last few years that it was interested in considering whether to use the Constitution to cut back on how gerrymandering is disfiguring our democracy, that it came, I think, as a surprise to many people. It might not have been such a surprise five years ago, but it was a surprise uh, this week when they finally decided there was nothing really that they could say that would be useful here. They could not find a test in the Constitution they could apply to an outlandish uh, gerrymander. And the federal courts are now ordered effectively to withdraw from this area altogether and many lower courts that have decided cases and have ordered redrawn maps, and some elections have been conducted under redrawn maps, and the court has at times permitted it and at times overruled it, uh, all of that will, will be uh, swept aside by this rule. It's a surprising result at this moment in time.
0: I mean, it really is a remarkable sort of throwing in the towel, as as Justice Kagan says in dissent, an actual, everyone agrees the, there are constitutional violations here and not minor ones, sort of the disenfranchisement of, of you know, huge swaths of, of population just by the the raw partisan uh, manipulation of, of entrenched interests, the sort of thing that, you know, drove much of the framers' motivation for setting up. The government in the first place, and as you say, there there had been decision after decision where they had seemed to tiptoe in the last several years. Kennedy being a key proponent of this, uh, to the effect of, well, most for the most part, we got to let it go, but there are obviously these extreme situations where you know maybe there's a remedy. There should be a remedy. We might hold there's a remedy, and and they had you know done that repeatedly up to the line and so then for the whole that whole chapter to end with this kind of defeatist you know sorry america sorry uh republicans of maryland or democrats of is of uh was it what was the other north carolina there's just you guys are screwed and that's what the political process means um joyce you mentioned you had a you've had a role in some of these related cases is that right
2: Well, you know, it's interesting in Alabama, we've had a lot of litigation over gerrymandering, and I participated in some of it in the Alabama redistricting case that went to the Supreme Court while we were at the Justice Department. We actually filed an amicus brief in that case, and Don Verrilli, who was the Solicitor General at the time, argued during that case Subsequently, um, after reentering private practice, I participated in, in representing one of the parties, the Alabama Democratic Conference, in a- another stage of that litigation. But the result of this case will impact Alabama just like it will any other yeah. state. There yeah. will no longer be any challenge to the political nature of gerrymandering.
0: Or if it really of any, I mean, even if it we call it political, but if it seems like a rank, whatever reason is used, it's just um, hands off. Well, so let me ask this. You know, if any-
2: actually, I disagree with that. I don't think that that's true. If there was, for instance, Race. evidence of explicit racial yeah. animus. I think you'd still be in business, but the problem will be separating anything impermissible out from this newly permissible factor of political gerrymandering. Yeah,
0: but, but but I mean, Joyce, that, that's only because that's a separate constitutional violation. It would that would inhere right. here in the in the intentional racial discrimination, not in. The gerrymandering uh, itself. And you know, Kagan, exactly Kagan right. reads from the bench, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like the closing of a door on such an important... Actually, there's a
1: couple
3: of peculiarities about this decision that are interesting. Uh, the first is that it applies only to political gerrymandering. Now, the North Carolina case was a very brutal instance of political gerrymandering. There's testimony in the records that the lines were drawn very specifically to favor Republicans. Some of the testimony made no bones about that made it clear that uh, the people who drew the lines saw electing Republicans as a good thing for the country and they were looking to maximize it. That was political gerrymandering at its most extreme. But it is still the case, as just was noted, that if there is efforts to gerrymander on a racial basis, which would violate the Equal Protection Clause, or perhaps it was, it was uh, gender biased, uh, the court would continue to take up such claims. In fact, opinion makes that clear but there will be incentive for anyone engaged in the map drawing exercise to disclaim that that's what they're doing and so often is difficult to understand what people's motives are and things can be couched in different ways which so is everything uh, which is everything in the battle. race
0: context you you would need yeah. to find real yeah. intent and yeah good, that you know. will be
3: that will create some interesting factual fights now but the separate point is that today's decision only applies to the federal courts it doesn't right. apply to the federal Congress, which could act, although this is a Congress that is so gridlocked, it's difficult to imagine it acting on anything that would have political overtones. you probably have to have big majorities in both houses to ever go in that direction. Uh, but also the states can act. The states can continue to act through amending their constitutions or through legislation. Now, the downside of that is very often the people who control the levers of legislation are also the people who control the levers of gerrymandering, but they're not always the same. In addition, state courts interpreting state constitutions can upset their own electoral maps, even for federal offices. That happened in Pennsylvania uh, very recently, Mm -hmm. and those maps were redrawn, and it led to significant changes in the Pennsylvania congressional delegation in 2018. There could be more of that. It's only the federal courts that are now disabled, although they have been Playing a muscular role, and that role is now completely exterminated.
0: Right. I mean, and I'll just say, look, I, 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 see why the court was flailing and struggling with it for years. I don't think it's necessarily nefarious or Republican-loving on the, you know, from on the majority's five-person majority part to say, boy, we just can't get our fingers around any real test. But Kagan, I think, is very persuasive in dissent. And I put it this way, if nothing else, it is a sad day. I mean, there's a, it's a, it is a defeatist um, uh, point that there is what everyone sees as really fundamental uh, constitutional violations, fundamental in the sense that they are generative of other constitutional rights and there's not a darn thing to be done. That's not that's not a happy day, I think, for the a for
3: constitution. No, it's only a happy day for someone who considers the court's proper role to be very modest, as it appears perhaps Chief Justice Roberts uh, does, and wants to separate it as much as possible from political controversy. The irony is today's decision is a very political decision with great political consequences, but the intention here clearly is to try to take the court out of further uh, political action on this subject for all time to come.
0: That's actually a very good segue to the other one because you're right that w- that's Roberts' instinct, and yet he and the court did a pretty remarkable thing in the census case, which is they actually uh, second guessed the executive's assertion that the extra question about citizenship had been the the White House wanted to say that's just there to help enforce voting rights. Now, that seemed like a spurious defense, but in general, in these matters, you give the executive a lot of deference, a lot of running room. It seemed to me here at the court in saying, you know, we're not, this may have been a pretext. This is now in the district court, was doing something pretty uh, extraordinary. I wonder if you agree, and if you do agree, what what you uh, think is the explanation for their, uh, you know, not just second guessing, but so, sort of demeaning as pretextual the administration's proffered reasoning.
3: Uh, the census case is a very interesting uh, a case decision and set of opinions. It reminds me a lot of the healthcare ruling uh, from, from the recent term where the court uh, re- rejected various uh, arguments and then settled on one that was quite unexpected. Here, the court goes out of its way to say that it is possible and would be permissible to include a census question uh, on citizenship, which is what most people thought the case was all about. Uh, It also says that he had, there, there was some substantial evidence that could be cited for it. But then it says that in this case, however, based on this record, in this instance, Uh, We find that the Secretary's decision here was based on a pretext and doesn't really pass a straight face test in terms of the evidence that was before the court uh, on what the grounding was for adding the census question. It seemed pretty clearly done for nakedly political purposes and not for the justifications that were cobbled together after the fact. Now, the interesting point is uh, this does not seem to preclude a, a citizenship question from being included on the census in the future but probably not enough time for 2020. Do you agree? That's right. It may not even preclude, does not preclude it for 2020 necessarily, except the practicalities are now that there is very little time available. Uh, The census uh, probably will have to be conducted. Uh, They have said at least they'll have to go to print on documents by the end of this month. Maybe they'll back that up now and try to put together a different rationale, but if they come up with a different rationale, They're going to be hard pressed because it will be a changing rationale. It will certainly seem like a post hoc uh, rationalization and even more arbitrary and capricious than the court found the previous explanation to be. It's also the case that. And they're
0: back, of course, in the district court, which is which is already skeptical. And the district
3: court is already taking up a new issue around all of this, which is the additional evidence that was found uh, about how this was done by the uh, by the. Uh, gerrymander expert who has passed away and his records became available through his estate uh, to the the plaintiffs here. And the district court has already said that's a further problem and one that we're going to need to look into. So I would agree with you. It seems unlikely to me they'll be able to wade through that whole morass and put the census question on uh, for citizenship this time. Whether they could do it 10 years from now or 20 years from now is an open question. It's also a question whether if the district court continues to hold to its guns, whether the Supreme Court would come in with some belated intervention down the road and stop the district court's decision from taking effect if the census tries to do more uh, to get a citizenship question on. I think it's unlikely that the court would do that.
2: I think it's really interesting Everything that Rich is saying it is so on the money. And when you think about the Justice Department's reason, the reason that the Supreme Court finds is, is likely pretextual for adding this citizenship question to the census, they said it was in order so to uh, make it possible for the Justice Department to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And this is not a Justice Department that's made any effort to enforce the Voting Rights Act. In fact, on the occasions where they went into court as regards the Voting Rights Act, it was to reverse positions taken during the Obama administration that would have protected people's right to vote. So that has always sounded wrong, and it never made sense that they were willing to spend what's estimated to be $121 million to add that question so that this administration could protect the Voting Rights Act. And that's why this new evidence is so interesting. It really connects the dots, because if it proves to be true, what it indicates is that there was an effort by an analyst who worked for the Republican Party to figure out what they could do to hold on to the vote as as areas like Texas, as the demographics changed. And they realized that they needed some data that they didn't have to make those districts work out in their favor as that shift went forward. And amazingly enough, the the information, the data that they need is data that would be collected by asking this citizenship question. So as courts consider this, I think the government's rationale gets even weaker. And not only is there this case that was tried in New York and had this very unusual process of going straight to the Supreme Court, there's also a, a Maryland case that's been to the Fourth Circuit which where the court in the Fourth Circuit could additionally enjoin asking this question on the census. So even if something crazy happens back in the district court in New York, there's this additional vehicle where now this new, clear evidence will be considered separately.
0: That's a great uh, point. And I, I, I'll i just say I agree with everything here. But even so, I can think of you know, I can count on one hand the cases in, in which, you know, that at least occur to me where the court is second guessing and dismissing as pretextual proffered um, reasons by a coordinate uh, branch, and I just wonder if part of what's going on isn't there, you know, saying, "Look, we're no fools here. Don't think, don't think we're we're just uh, automatons or political allies. We understand that this administration, you know, has been extraordinarily mendacious, and these are sort of the wages." Of the lies coming home to roost, maybe that's maybe that plays a part. Maybe it doesn't,
1: or at least be one of the Republican justices. And Harry, we may we may find out very quickly just how pretextual and, and mendacious the government wants to be on this. Um, you you may recall that um, what they had said before is that they needed to skip review in the Second Circuit and go straight to the right. Supreme Court. My my colleague Richard Primus reminded me of of this fact. Um, because they had to have a decision no later than June in time for the 2020 census. If they were to go back now and come up with a new reason and say, here's the real reason, and and have this go before the courts and say, well, we are able to do it, I think that really will expose the pretextual nature of uh, the reason as well as the mendacious nature of their procedural posturing.
0: Um, Yeah. Great, all really true, and of course we're just digesting it now. In our Talking Feds uh, now special episodes, we typically don't include a sidebar, but we can, and I maybe today we will. In, uh, close out as we normally do with a five words or fewer. And that's uh, the final segment where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Now, um, Joyce Vance, I think, made uh, Twitter history, I don't know, made made a big impact on Twitter announcing her number one uh, rule. And I think uh, that came up with respect to Duncan Hunter, the congressman out here, but that is... Behind every criminal is a woman he's wronged who is going to cooperate with the government when she finds out. Uh, And uh, that definitely uh, captured everyone's attention and leads to our question of the, the week for five words or fewer, and that is, what is Vance Rule number two, or maybe I'll say, what is a a big rule of the road for each of us that w- you could express in five words or fewer. So well, they've asked, what is Vance rule number two? So let's start with you.
2: You know, it's hard to do these rules in five <laughs> words or less, but my shortest one is everybody lies about something. <laughs>
3: That's great. Barb?
2: The truth is always revealed. Nice.
3: Rich. I would say based on the events of this week with the uh, gerrymandering decision, a good rule of thumb is don't expect a court rescue. Oh, that's really good.
0: Yeah, all I can think of is outside of the general court and prosecutorial role, but I try to think of it as a rule anyway, which is never complain, explain, or apologize. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much, Joyce, Barb, and Rich Cordray. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Thanks to those who recently submitted new questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Please feel free to keep them coming, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippum. Transcripts by Cassandra Sunt. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.